We have been involved in a series of studies on Sunday evening about the New Testament church. We began each time by noting that Jesus made the promise in Matthew 16 and in verse 18, upon this rock I will build my church. And so since Jesus said that he would build his church, this is the Lord's church. And since Jesus is divine, then this is a divine institution. That promise that Jesus uttered was made while the Old Testament was in force, but not fulfilled until the New Testament, New Covenant came into play. Jesus made the point in Matthew chapter 5 that the Old Testament law is not the principles upon which it is built, but it is built upon the New Covenant, the New Testament, 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And thus this is the New Testament church. And so we've been talking about the New Testament church. Let's review where we've been and what we've seen thus far. We've talked in our series that, about the standard and the discipline. That is, what standard does this church have? Jesus is its only head. The Old Testament is not her law, but the New Testament is the only guide that the, the New Testament church follows. And then we talked about the origin and the establishment of the church began in the mind of God and established in AD 33 in Jerusalem. And then we talked about its nature, that it is the saved, it is the church, it is the kingdom, it is the temple, it's the bride, etc. And then we talked in our last study about the organization of the church, that universally there is no organization, but locally there is the organization of elders and deacons and saints. Tonight we want to continue that study and we want to talk about the New Testament church, that is its work. <clears throat> what work does the New Testament church have? I want to back up just a little bit as we talk about the uh, work and raise some questions about the distinctions that are made, and we'll do that in just a moment. But our question that we're asking is, what is the work of the local church? And by that, we're simply asking, what is the work that God gave it to do? It's obvious <clears throat> that some think the church can do anything that's good for mankind. We'll say more about that in our study in just a few moments. And so that being the case, there are some who think the church could feed the hungry, they could doctor the sick, they could house the homeless, entertain the bored, and educate the young. And many churches, even among churches of Christ, are doing that very thing. Now I want to back up and deal with some things we dealt with in our last study, which are important for our study tonight. And that is the term church is used in two senses. The Bible uses the term church in a universal sense with reference to the saved all over the world. We see that in 1 Corinthians chapter, or Ephesians chapter 1, 22 and 23, that Christ is the head of the church the body. And so the church or the body is referred to there is the church in a universal sense. In our, the promise we've been talking about in Matthew 16 and verse 18, that was a promise that I will build my church. That's in a universal sense. But the church is also used that term in a local sense. There was the church of God, which is at Corinth. Or we read of the churches of Christ that salute you, Romans 16, 16. More about that in a moment. Or we read of the seven churches of Asia. So there are local churches, and then there is the universal church. That distinction needs to be kept in mind. And one of the distinctions we made, or some of the distinctions we made, the church in a universal sense, there's only one, but there are many local churches. Romans 16 and verse 16. In the universal sense, there is no organization. There is no work to be done. God gave it none, and there is no treasury from which to function. But in the local sense, the church has an organization. It has work that we'll get to in a moment, and it has a treasury from which to function and do the work God gave it to do. 
So as we talk about the work of the local church, let's spend a little time talking about determining the work. How do we go about determining what is the work of the church? Does that local church, each church is autonomous, as we mentioned in our last study. Does each church just sit down and say, what kind of work do we want to do? What kind of scope do we want to have? And then they decide their work. How does a church go about determining the work that it's going to do? Well, let's begin with this, that first of all, the church must be involved in a work that is authorized. It must be authorized by the pages of the New Testament. So let's open our Bibles now to Acts chapter 15, if you will. Open your Bibles to Acts chapter 15. This is a case where we just talked about recently in the book of Galatians, where there was a confrontation in Jerusalem, that Jerusalem conference, as some refer to it, or that Jerusalem discussion, over circumcision that took place in Acts chapter 15. I'm convinced Galatians 2 is talking about the same event. But be that as it may, if Acts chapter 15, there was a question that arose, is circumcision binding? Can Gentiles be saved without being circumcised is the question at hand. Now let's fast forward and get to the end of the study in Acts 15 and look at verse 28. When the conclusion was drawn, the conclusion was that this conclusion was driven by the Holy Spirit. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than the necessary things. In other words, the Holy Spirit has determined circumcision is not binding. Here is what is binding, but circumcision is not binding as a condition of salvation. Now, how did they know what the Holy Spirit thought? Well, there were three speeches that were made. There was Peter stood up and made a speech, verses 7 through 11. Verse 12 mentions that there was Paul and Barnabas making a speech. Beginning at verse 13 through verse 21, James stood up and made a speech. Now, what do we learn from those? Let's start from the end and work backwards. In Acts chapter 15, beginning at verse 13, James made an appeal to a direct statement from God. And I want you to notice in Acts chapter 15, beginning at verse 13, that James stood up and he said, Simon has declared, speaking of uh, Peter's speech in verses 7 to 11, <clears throat> Simon has declared how that God at first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophet agrees, just as it written, and now he quotes from Amos 9. What did Amos 9 say? After this, I will return and rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down, and will rebuild its ruins. I will set it up so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. What do you mean by the rest of mankind, Amos? What I mean by that is even all the Gentiles who are called by my name. So here is a direct statement from Amos 9 that said Gentiles as Gentiles could be saved, which means they would not have to be circumcised. So what's the conclusion? If the Gentiles, by prophecy, a direct statement, then we have a direct statement or a command from God that says Gentiles can be saved without being circumcised. Paul and Barnabas also made a speech at verse 12. Didn't tell us all the details, just gives us the summary. Then all the multitude kept silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul, declaring how many miracles and wonders God had worked through them among the Gentiles. So I didn't see what their speech was. Keep in mind where we are in Acts 15. Back up one chapter, that's Acts 14. More and more chapter, that's Acts 13. Those two chapters are the first missionary journey. Paul and Barnabas are traveling from Antioch to Iconium and Lystra and Derbe. 
and they're traveling from one city to another, preaching the gospel, not binding circumcision. How do I know God approved of that? Go back to verse 12. The miracles and wonders that God worked through them. So Paul and Barnabas appealed to an example of their work, and we know God gave his approval to that because of the miracles and wonders and signs that were performed. So they made an appeal to an approved example as evidence that indeed circumcision is not binding. Well, let's go now to the third speech, which was actually first in record, beginning at verse 7. Peter rose up and Peter said this. He said, men and brethren, you know how that a good while ago God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So God who knows their hearts acknowledged them, giving the whole, them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. All right, he said, I went to the household of Cornelius, Acts 10, and we uh, dealt with the Gentiles. And how do you know that Gentiles then were gospel subjects? How do you know that, Peter? Notice now at verse 9, verse 8, God gave them the Holy Spirit as he did unto us. What was your conclusion? And made no distinction between them and us, purifying their hearts by faith. In other words, we necessarily concluded that God made no distinction between Jew and Gentiles. We see the same thing down at verse, verse 9 and verse 10 without going any further. So Peter appealed to the events of Cornelius' household and he infers, necessarily infers from that, that indeed God said Gentiles can be saved as Gentiles. So here's what I want us to see. I want us to see that how authority was established by making an appeal to command, example, or necessary inference. We're hearing in the modern day among some of our own brethren that that's an old, outdated system of determining things. It is old, but not outdated. It's as old as the apostles themselves. They determined by command, by example, and necessary inference, the question concerning circumcision, and they attributed the answer to the Holy Spirit, verse 28. Or in modern terms, as one brother would call this, this is nothing more than what we do in determining anything that we know, any way we have knowledge. And that is we know it because of being told or being shown or it being implied or inferred. Everything you know, someone has shown that to you, someone has told that to you, or it is inferred. That's how you know anything you know. So that's exactly what took place in Acts chapter 15. Now let's illustrate concerning the matter of the Lord's Supper. Those same principles are found when it comes to the matter of the Lord's Supper. Why do we observe the Lord's Supper in the first place? Because our observance of it is a direct command of God. This do in remembrance of me, Jesus said. That was recorded in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 in the institution of the Lord's Supper. Now when it comes to the matter of approved example, why do we do that on the first day of the week? Someone said because we're commanded to do that. No, no there, you won't find a command to observe the Lord's Supper on the first day of the week. The only thing you can find is an example, and that's in Acts 20 and verse 7. How do I know God approved of that? That's the occasion where Eutychus fell out of the window. Remember the miracle of raising him up? So God gave his stamp of approval to that example of them observing the Lord's Supper on the first day of the week. Now what about the frequency of the observance? We know that because that's inferred. If they were to assemble on the first day of the week, and furthermore, the contribution was to be every first day of the week, 1 Corinthians 16, 1 and 2, then it means every time that first day falls or comes around, much like the command to remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. So our observance of the Lord's Supper 
illustrates how command, example, and necessary inference works. Now, what does that have to do with the question at hand? We're raising the question, what is the work of the church? What we're asking for is not what is a good work. What could the church do? How much money can we spend in a certain area? The question is, where is there a command? Where is there an example? Where is there a necessary inference? Where is the passage that authorizes the church to do whatever it is we're going to set out for the church to do? So first of all, in determining the work, it must be authorized. Secondly, it must be the work of the church and not the individual. How so? Well, let's open our Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 5 and in verse 16. What I want us to see is there is a distinction between the work of the individual and the work of the church. So when I'm raising the question, what can the church do? I can't run and just find something that the New Testament mentions. This needs to be done. It might be a command for the individual to do that. So I need to see the distinction in the individual and the church. 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 16, If any man or woman that believeth have widows, let them relieve them, and let not the church be charged, that it may relieve those that are widows indeed. Now I want you to notice the distinction. If any man or woman, there's an individual, that has a widow, let them relieve them, and let not the church be charged. That is, this man or woman that has a widow is to take care of that widow, and that's not the burden of the church. There's a distinction in the work the individual has and the church has. So we're trying to determine the work of the local church. There is a distinction between the church and the individual. Now, they differ in a number of ways. Here are three of which that we could illustrate. They differ in their name, they differ in their work, and in their finances. For example, the individual would be called a Christian. The disciples, plural, were called Christians. So that means an individual Christian or individual disciple would be called a Christian. That term was never used with reference to the aggregate or the collectivity. You never received the, the church being referred to as a Christian or the Christian church. It's referred to as the church or the church of Christ. There was a plurality of churches in Mount Romans 16, 16. The churches of Christ salute you. One of those would be a church of Christ such as the church at El Bethel, or the church at Corinth, or the church at Antioch. So we have a difference in the name that they wear. That's also true concerning their work, as we just saw in 1 Timothy chapter 5. Their finances differ. For example, an individual could buy and sell for gain, James 4. But the church only receives its money by free will offering. That's all we find authorized in the New Testament. So when we're raising the question, what is the work of the church? We're looking for what's authorized, either command, example, or inference. We're looking for the work of the church, not the individual, but may I suggest furthermore, it must be more than a good work. Now, what do we mean by that? Well, here's the idea that many have. And that is, if it is a good thing to do, then the church ought to do it. In other words, it's good to help those who are in need, so the church ought to do that. It's good to help those who are sick, the church ought to be involved. If it's good for the community, the church then can sponsor that, because it's a good work. And we ought to do good works. But in order for something to be a good work, it first must be authorized. Let's go to two passages we know well. Let's go to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. You recognize this being a passage dealing with inspiration of the scriptures. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped to every good work. In other words, it's a good work if the Word of God labels it as a good work. So just because I think it's good and it's good for the community, good for mankind, doesn't mean necessarily that it's a good work 
or just because it's something that I think to be good doesn't mean it's authorized. Let's go to 2 John verse 9. 2 John verse 9 said, if one goes onward and abides not in the doctrine of Christ, he does not have God. That is, if we do something outside the realm of the doctrine of Christ, we no longer have fellowship with God. We must find authority within the confines of the doctrine of Christ. So in order to determine the work, it must be authorized, must be the work of the church, not the individual, and be more than a good work. Secondly, let's talk about the scriptural work. In other words, what do we find in the scriptures that the church is to be involved in? What kind of work is the church to be involved in? The work the church can be involved in is the work that God gave the church to do. And so let's look at a list of those works. Let's start with the work of evangelism. The church can be involved in the work of evangelism. In 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15, Paul told Timothy that you may know how you ought to behave yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of truth. So the church is involved in the work of disseminating the gospel, preaching the gospel. We'll see evidence of that in a moment of supporting preachers, sending preachers. We'll give some details of that in just a moment. But the church can be involved in the work of evangelism, spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ. We all recognize that. It can also be involved in the work of edification, of building up the, the local saints, that it may edify itself in love. Speaking of the church, that it may edify itself, build up itself. Ephesians 4 and in verse 16. And so the church is authorized to do anything that's involved in building up the local church, building up and strengthening the saints. It can also be involved in the work of benevolence of those who are saints. Again, we cite 1 Timothy 5, 16, that it, that is the church, may relieve those that are widows indeed. A distinction was made in the work of the individual, as we've already noted, that the church is not to be charged, that it, the church, may relieve those that are widows indeed. So here we have a threefold work that we find scripture for. We find either command, example, or inference, where the church could be involved in evangelism, edification, and or benevolence. But let's go further. Let's establish the fact the church can do its own work. And what do we mean by that? Well, there are those who say the church has work to do, but it can't do its own work. We have to then establish another organization to do the work for the church. It was argued during the institutional days. The church cannot do its own benevolence. In fact, it was argued it's illegal for the church to do its work. The church is not capable. It's not set up to do the work of benevolence. So what we have to do for the church to do its benevolence is set up a separate organization and then the church send money to that organization and then that organization oversees and arranges and provides for those who are in need. Church couldn't do its own work. That wasn't the case in the New Testament I want to suggest to you. Let's turn in our Bibles to Acts chapter 6 verses 1 to 6. In Acts chapter 6 verses 1 to 6 there was a problem concerning benevolence. There were widows that were being neglected in the daily distribution. This apparently are some widows that were on a, on a continual roll of being taken care of out of the church treasury. Some were neglected in that. So the apostles said, they summoned the multitude of disciples, I'm reading at verse 2, and said, it's not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. And so they asked the brethren to look out among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we'll give ourselves to continually to prayer and the, and the ministry of the word. This saying pleased the whole multitude and they chose seven men. Now I want you to notice it, verse 7. And when they set them before the apostles and when they had prayed, they laid their hands on them. And then the word of God spread, verse 7 says, And the number of disciples greatly multiplied 
uh, greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the, uh, the priests were obedient to the faith. What am I learning from that? Here was a case where there was a problem of benevolence. The apostles being in authority oversaw the choosing of seven men. Those seven men carried out the work. There was no separate organization for the church to do its work. The church just simply did its own work. Here was the church with those that were overseeing the work, taking care of taking care of those who were in need. That was all that was involved. Let me give you another example. And that's a passage we've cited two or three times already. 1 Timothy 5 and verse 16. If any man or woman that believeth have widows, let them relieve them. Can I as an individual take care of a widow that's my responsibility? Can I do my own work? And you say, well, sure you can. That's what that text says. Well, that text also says that it, the church, may relieve those that are widows indeed. Can it do its own work? And the answer has to be obviously yes. We're talking about the scriptural work. It's the work that God gave the church to do. The church can do its own work. Let's talk about what the church can and is authorized to do. In the work of evangelism, the church can send to a preacher. Let's go to Philippians chapter 4. Go to Philippians chapter 4 and verse 15. One of the purposes of the letter of the church to the church at Philippi was Paul was thankful for receiving the contribution, not the, uh, let me rephrase that, the receiving the support that they had sent to him. And he said, you um, Philippians know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me or communicated with me concerning giving and receiving, but you only. But even in Thessalonica, you sent once and again to my necessities. What's going on? Well, here was a church at Philippi that had supported the preaching of the gospel and they sent directly to Paul. Well, we see the same thing in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and in verse 8. Paul said, I received wages to do your service. In other words, other churches sent me money. They sent directly to the preacher. No, we do the very same thing. We are sending money to some brethren in the Philippines. And in this country as well, we're sending money directly to the preacher in the preaching of the gospel. That's exactly what takes place in Philippians 4 and in verse 15. But sometimes a church can send a preacher. They can send a preacher forth and support him in the preaching of the gospel. Let's go back to Acts chapter 11 and in verse 22. This is the case when the news of what had taken place at Antioch had reached the church at Jerusalem. They sent out Barnabas that he should go as far as Antioch. And I take that they sent him. It was not just a matter of saying goodbye, but they supported him in sending him forth to preach the gospel. So here the church at Jerusalem is supporting him as he goes forth preaching and sharing the gospel with others. Well, we see the same thing in the missionary journey. There were men that were appointed, Paul and Barnabas. Hands were laid upon them and they were sent forth by the church. They were supported by the church at Antioch. And so what can a church do? They have scriptural authority to send money to a preacher or they can send a preacher forth in the preaching of the gospel. But that's not all that he can do. It can help those that are needy saints. There is no scripture that says the church can help just anyone in the matter of benevolence. There are nine New Testament passages that will mention either those that are believers, those that are saints, like 2 Corinthians 8, 2 Corinthians 9, 1 Timothy 5, Romans 15, Acts 11, and other passages. There are nine New Testament passages that talk about Acts 2, Acts 4, Acts 6. Those passages all deal with the matter of the church helping those that are saints. But again, I cite 1 Timothy 5, 16, that it may relieve those that are widows. Indeed, the context deals with those who indeed are saints. But let's go further. The church can also send to another church in the matter of benevolence. Now, we have this in Acts chapter 11 and in verse 27. In the days the prophets came to Jerusalem, from Jerusalem to Antioch, then one of them named Agabus stood up and showed by the Spirit 
that there was going to be a great famine throughout the world, and it happened about the days of Claudius Caesar. Then the disciples, each one according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. And this they did and sent it. Means they collected it and put it together. They pooled their funds. That's collective action. To the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. So here is a case where one church is sending money to another church, not for evangelism, but for benevolence. Now that's a different case from what we see in Romans 16 and in 2 Corinthians 8 2 Corinthians 9, but it's parallel in principle. What happened in 2 Corinthians 8, 2 Corinthians 9, 1 Corinthians 16, and Romans 15, those are all talking about the identical case, where one church would send money to another church for the case of benevolence, as in the case of the churches of Macedonia, we see. Same principle found there. That's what a church can do. Now, let's talk about the unscriptural work. Now, notice in the scriptural work that we just talked about, that with every one of those, we found a book, a chapter, and a verse. We found a command, example, or necessary inference. Let's talk about some unscriptural work that churches are involved in. And that is, some churches are involved in social and recreational things. That is, the social gospel that we've talked about several times. Let's talk about what the social gospel involves. That's a study within itself and could be a whole series of studies to talk about the social gospel, how it began and how it grew and then how it crept into the church. The social gospel is, in, is the concept that the... the the work of the church and the work of preaching the gospel really is to take care of man's social needs, poverty, his medical needs, uh, his mental needs, whatever the case may be, that whatever his needs are, we take care of his social needs. Along with that are recreational things. Here's some churches, things that churches are involved in. When churches build kitchens for social and recreational purposes, that is, they build a kitchen and they're going to have a social dinner at the expense of the church. They're involved in the social gospel. A lot of churches do that. When you have a fellowship hall, as we used to call them, or now they call them multi-purpose buildings, which means they may use it for Bible classes, they may use it for worship, but they also use it for, for sports, they use it for games, they use it for eating. Those multi-purpose buildings suggest they're involved in a social gospel. Or it may be they have ball teams. A number of churches have ball teams they sponsor. Others have recreational programs they're involved in. They have a team that they're playing, uh, and they sponsor a team. Or it may be their church is involved in daycare centers that operate daycare centers. I don't mean they just have a nursery where children could go during worship, but they're operating a daycare center and sometimes charging for those. Or any of the gimmicks that have been used to draw crowds as part of the social gospel concept. Where maybe we have a banana split party in order to have everybody come, or maybe the bus program of a number of years ago that fizzled out. Those are part of the social gospel program. And on and on, we could go listing those kinds of con con uh, um, concepts. I want us to see the church is not a social order. Let's establish that, and the gospel is not a social gospel. Let's go to Romans chapter 14, if you will. And in verse 17, let's establish the fact the church is not a social order. When, when the Lord established the church and died for the church, gave his blood for the church, he was not establishing a social order that is existing for the good of mankind to do good for mankind. But it was a spiritual order. So notice in Romans chapter 14 and in verse 17, for the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. What's the kingdom of God about? It's not about food. It's not about drink. 
is not a social order. It's about spiritual things. Well, let's see that same principle again. Let's go to John 18 and verse 36. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. In other words, this is not an earthly kingdom. It's not like the earthly kingdoms that have social programs. It's not of this world. It's a spiritual order. Notice in 1 Timothy 2 and in verse 5, 1 Peter rather, not 1 Timothy, but 1 Peter 2 and in verse 5, we're built up as living stones, a spiritual house, a holy priesthood. This is a spiritual order, a spiritual house, a spiritual priesthood. This is not a social order. But equally important to that is the gospel is not a social gospel. The gospel is not a dissemination of how man needs to be improved, but it's a matter of salvation from sin. That's the message of the gospel. Let's go to John chapter 6. We alluded to this principle this morning in John chapter 6. And let's notice in verse 27, 26 and 27. Jesus said, you seek me. Not because you saw the signs, that is the feeding of the 5,000, but because you ate the, the loaves and are filled. It's not because you saw a miracle and you're impressed with me. It's because you like the food and you want more. He said, do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures into everlasting life. Now let's drop down to verse 63 where we were this morning. Look at verse 63. He said, my words, they are, verse, yeah, verse 63, my words, they are spirit and they are life. You see, my message is not a social message of feeding the hungry. My message is a spiritual message of salvation from sin. Let's go to Romans chapter 1. The gospel is the power of God into salvation to everyone that believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Well, only cite one of these verses or two of these verses in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I want you to get the principle. 1 Corinthians chapter, chapter 1 and look at verse 18 that the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those of us who are saved, it is the power of God. That is, it's the power of God unto salvation. Same principle, verse 21, as well as in chapter 2. Now let's talk about the issue of eating in the building. When we talk about the social gospel, the, uh, one of the questions that has come up through the years is, is it right for the church to have a kitchen and for there to be eating in the building, such as a fellowship hall, uh, to have a church dinner, is that scriptural and is that right? And I want to suggest to you that many of those of us who have opposed that have misunderstood what the issue was. And if we misunderstand the issue, then we're going to focus on the wrong thing. And we're going to make arguments that are not sound. What was the issue when that question came up? What, what, what is the issue now? The issue never was, is the building sacred? Is the materials of which this building is made of, is it sacred? Is the brick any different than the brick of your house? Is the carpet any different than the, the drywall and the paint? And the answer to that is no. There's nothing sacred about the building within itself. That was never the question. The question was not, can one eat inside the building? Or can one eat on church property? There have been some who've had the concept that it's wrong to eat in the building. They don't have a clue why. But they think it's wrong to eat in the building and they will eat outside the building and then when they step in the door, it might be on a Monday, they're coming to work on the building, maybe to do some class material, might run some copies, but they eat their sandwich outside the door, but come through the door, they can't eat it because it's wrong to eat in the building. You ask them why, they don't have a clue. They don't know. Wouldn't know how to make the argument against it. They don't know what's going on, but it's wrong to eat in the building is all they know. That was never the issue. That was never the question. Here's the question. The question was and is, can the church have a common meal for social and recreational purposes? Can the church out of its treasury support and sponsor that? 
by providing the place or providing the food or providing the environment. Can the church do that? Can the church have a common meal for social and recreational purposes? Now, let's go a little bit further. I want us to see that aids are authorized within the command. Now, we're driving to, uh, to make a point about social things. We'll come to that in just a moment. But let's illustrate our, our point. That if there is a command that authorizes the aid. For example, the command to eat bread in the Lord's Supper. That authorizes us to use tables and plates. So when I'm asking for Bible authority, I'm not looking for a passage that specifically mentions tables and plates. I just need a command that says to eat bread. That authorizes us to use those aids. All right, let's take another command. The command to baptize, Matthew 28, would authorize within that command the baptistry of the heater. I'm not looking for a passage that specifically mentions the baptistry. That's authorized within the command. This is merely an aid to carry out that command. Same thing comes with building the ark of Genesis 6. I'm not looking for a passage that mentions the tool or the animal. Building the ark would authorize using a tool or an animal to build the ark, not to make an additional kind of wood, though. Same thing with singing. I'm not looking for a passage. Someone said there's no passage that mentions books. No, there's not a passage that mentions songbooks or projectors to project the songs. But that's authorized within the command to sing. Well, the same thing is true concerning the contribution. I'm not looking for a passage that mentions a basket or an account. That's authorized within the command. So here's my point. My point is, I'm not looking for a passage that mentions a kitchen or fellowship hall. I'm not looking for that at all. What I'm looking for is the passage. Where is the passage that mentions meals for social and recreational purposes? If someone can find me a command example or an inference that said the church can have a common meal for social and recreational purposes, that will authorize that kitchen. That will authorize that fellowship hall. It's the command that we're missing. Not a specific reference to the kitchen any more than any of these. I'm looking for the command example or inference that authorizes the church being involved in social and recreational things. Now, while we're talking about that, let's take a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Common meals were individual matters. Common meals were individual matters. In 1 Corinthians 11, there was the abuse of the Lord's Supper. I will recognize. They were abusing the Lord's Supper and making a common meal out of the Lord's Supper. And one would eat it before others were even getting there. Some was stuffing himself and one hadn't even eaten a thing. And so they were making an abuse of the Lord's Supper. They were not observing it properly. I recognize all of that in the context. But in answer to that problem, notice what he said. He said, when you come together into one place, verse 20, this is not to eat the Lord's Supper. It should have been, but that's not what they were doing. For in eating, one taketh before him his own supper, and one is hungry and another is drunk. In other words, one didn't get much, and the other one got gorged. What, do you not have houses to eat and to drink in? Or despise the church of God, or shame those that have not? What shall I say? Shall I praise you unless I praise you not? What I want you to see, this was more than an abuse of the Lord's Supper. He's, part of his answer was, when, when you're making a common meal together in the assembly, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? You see, the common meal is an individual matter. You do that at your home, not here in the assembly. A distinction, indeed, that was made in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Now, let's notice a difference in incidental matters and things that are planned. Some have argued that because we can do things incidentally at the building, that authorizes us to do far more than that. For example, there may be some things we do incidentally. During this political season, we may after services or before services have a discussion of politics. What'd you think about that debate the other night? What'd you think about what happened in New Hampshire? What'd you think about the, how it went down in Iowa? What do you think's gonna happen in South Carolina? Do you think so-and-so's gonna drop out? 
you think he'll stay in the race or do you think she'll come back stronger? All of those kind of discussions we'll have. That's incidental things while we are assembled or before we assemble or after. We might sell or deliver a, an item that's sold. You might be selling something and you bring it to them and just deliver it to the building. Say, here, here we go. Here's what you bought from me. And that's an incidental matter. Or we might do something like seek medical advice. We have a number of nurses here, and we might go to them and ask them some medical advice. What do you think is the problem with me? I've been feeling this way. Or we might eat on the property, incidentally. I've eaten a number of times while building the building and working on that. And maybe someone cleaning the building or a lady working in some class material or running copy. We might eat on the building. But here is something that's planned and sponsored by the church. There's a far cry from talking about politics, incidentally, and having a political rally. No one would oppose after, after the services having a discussion, somebody asking you a question about politics, but would you agree to having a, uh, a political rally at the expense of the church? There's no Bible authority for that. Same thing is true concerning the church being in business. We might have some buying and selling going on, but that's not the same thing as the church being in business. We might seek medical advice, but that doesn't put the church in the hospital or medical clinic business. No authority for that. The same thing is this kind of incidental thing, eating on the property versus having a church kitchen or a church dinner. Here's another area of unscriptural work, the church being involved in business. There are a number of churches, even some churches of Christ that have been involved in business. I've known of one that owned a funeral home and operated it as a funeral. I don't mean they bought a funeral home to use the building, but bought the business and operated the business. Others have operated a daycare business. Some are involved in operating distilleries, not churches of Christ. The Catholic church owns more distilleries than anyone. And so they, are, they own the distilleries in the state of Kentucky, most of them anyway. And so they're involved in a number of businesses where they're buying, they're selling, and they're getting gain. Another work that some churches are involved in is the work of entertainment. Uh, of entertaining, maybe they have productions, they have plays, uh, they have various things to entertain the crowd. They may have bands, etc., and so what's wrong with all of that? The big problem with that is there is no command, there is no example, and there's no inference. Remember Acts 15? I don't know what the Holy Spirit wants. All I need to do is find a command that says the church can be involved in business or in entertainment or recreation or social things or an example or a passage that necessarily infers that. There is no command, there is no example, there's no necessary inference. Here's something else that's an unscriptural work, and that's for the work for a church to do the work of another congregation. What do we mean by that? Well, we noticed this in our study last time, that each local church is autonomous. How do we know that? There's the limitation of the elder's authority. These passages we noticed last time, each eldership has authority over that church, over which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, oversee the flock of God among you, 1 Peter 5, Acts chapter 20. So the elders of this church have the oversight of that local church. They have no authority over any other local church. They have no authority to oversee the work of another local church. There's just no Bible. There's no command. There's no example. There's no inference. In fact, if they do oversee that, they're violating the principles of the autonomy mentioned in these two passages. You say, how does that ever happen? Well, I've known of a number of cases where a larger church helps establish a smaller church, maybe in the city. So let's say, let's take 20 people out of this group and we want to start a church on the other side of the county, then the elders of this church oversees both works, both churches. That's unscriptural. Nothing in the scriptures about that. That's happened even in our own city here, of one church overseeing the work of another church. That's unscriptural. There is no Bible authority for that. 
Another way in which that's done, this church decides because we've got funds and we've got money, we're going to take on this project. You send us your money and we'll carry on and do part of your work for you, such as the preaching of the gospel. So we're going to raise money from all these churches and we're going to have millions of dollars and we'll oversee this project and we'll oversee the whole thing. And it's your work too. It's the work of the churches of Christ, not our work, but it's, it's all of us we're working. So this eldership is overseeing a brotherhood work. That's not found in the pages of the New Testament. So what have we seen tonight? A very simple study. The New Testament church and the work that it's involved in. How do we determine the work? We go to the New Testament, we look for command, we look for example and necessary inference. The scripture work is that of evangelism, edification, and benevolence, and then we listed a number of things that would be contrary to the scriptures that are not found because there's no command, there's no example, and there is no inference. There might be one or more present this evening who's not a Christian, who's not a child of God, would you come believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Would you repent of your sins, acknowledge your faith, and be buried in the waters of baptism for the remission of sins? If you're subject in any way, would you come? All together we stand and while we sing.